Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trend, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of 2021 for the Third Fridays podcast. Uh, my name is Christian Cisan, and uh, very excited to begin a new year uh, with new issues, uh, of course, to, to discuss with you all. Uh, thank you all for uh, the viewership that, uh, and listenership that has come in the past few months has uh, increased our, our awareness here of Third Friday's podcast. We're very appreciative of that. And if you want to recap on what's uh, been happening with us in the last two months, uh, two months ago, uh, Christopher Major came onto the show and talked about the health insurance matching program. It's a very, very uh, under the radar way to reduce a carrier's bottom line with respect to workers' compensation claims. And last month, uh, Addison O'Donnell came on to the show to talk about a new decision from the third department, the appellate division, regarding labor market attachment. So uh, those two episodes can be uh, reviewed uh, to recap you on what uh, I've been talking about in the past two months. But as we flip over to the new year, uh, I welcome uh, my partner uh, here at Lois Law Firm and, and a frequent guest, Declan Gorley. Welcome back to the show, Declan. Thanks for having me back, Christian. I appreciate the invite. We'll start off 2021 with a bang. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so for everybody listening, uh, I'd always planned for the January 2021 uh, episode to discuss medical treatment guidelines. Uh, and that's because the board was planning to roll out new body parts to be governed by these guidelines. And these include the ankle and foot, asthma, depression, the elbow, the hand, wrist, and forearm, the hip and groin, interstitial lung disease, and PTSD. Now, that is already a one over a 100% increase in body parts and conditions that we currently have today. Uh, so the board was making a very clear and demonstrative push to have essentially almost all treatment be governed by the medical treatment guidelines. Uh, but as uh, all of you know, we have been in a, a different environment uh, the past eight months. And essentially, the board said that the health crisis facing the state has continued to impact the ability of authorized healthcare providers to implement changes and comply with the new guidelines. A very, very key uh, statement here from the board saying that to prevent any negative impacts to injured workers, the board has issued an order of the chair directing that these new guidelines will instead be effective on a date to be decided later. Now, ending the order of the chair or ending that notice by giving, without giving a real date, puts us in limbo. Uh, we're still going to use the time to talk about the guidelines because there's uh, you know, a, a, a greater need to really understand them. Before we get into that, Declan, any commentary or any thoughts as to 
you know, what led the board to make this decision or, or any opinions you may have, uh, maybe just feedback our clients and our prospective clients can, can um, take into account based on this uh, update. Well, considering it was open for review for doctors and providers to provide some commentary as to what they thought of the guidelines as they were proposed to make any recommendations or any objections, I guess, it would seem, I think it seems kind of fair that they would at least want to put that off until we're out of the middle of a pandemic when maybe their their uh, thoughts are on other more pertinent matters. Again, it gets all in the eye of the beholder what's more pertinent, but it's a pretty drastic change to the workers' comp system, I think. Uh, the, the medical treatment guidelines that we've got in place currently are really all orthopedic in nature. And as you said, this pretty much covers everything that you're going to see in a worker's comp claim from lung disease to uh, PTSD and depression. We've never had psychiatric guidelines before. So this to me is a real game changer. And as significant a change as it is, it would make sense that we at least allow the medical community to have their full thoughts on it and the opportunity to review it. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that uh, without a real understanding of what the guidelines are saying, uh, it's going to be hard for any provider or any uh, carrier or payor to determine whether treatment is within the guidelines or outside. Uh, do you think, I mean, maybe uh, I'm, I'm pressing a little bit further, but if there was no pandemic, uh, do you think that healthcare providers would be completely up to date with these new guidelines because as we just discussed it, it, adding all these body parts just seems like a tall task, right? We're not dealing with academics who are sitting at home. They're still treating even if they're doing telemedicine. Would it even have been possible for these doctors to have been up to speed January 1st, 2021, if uh, we weren't facing a pandemic? We depose doctors day in and day out. We see what their reports say. These Guidelines have been in existence for over 10 years. There's many doctors that don't know what's in the old guidelines from over 10 years ago, let alone the new guidelines that are about to be implemented. So what they know is a different story. Um, what they willfully ignore, I guess, is a different story. But as far as getting their feedback on as far as what their recommendations would be as to what should be pre-authorized or within the guidelines, that's where I think the hiccup probably comes and why they were at least given a little bit of a delay to review them in more detail until I'm going to guess that there's not going to be any uh, approval of these until the pandemic is over, hopefully soon. Yeah, I think that's a fair guess, right? Um, you know, hopefully uh, we are using this time wisely to get up to speed because you know there, there are some good uh, advantages um, uh, to implementing these. Um, but let's use that to actually discuss whether it's good for either side. Um, do a little bit of point-counterpoint. Um, we're gonna say one person is gonna take the position of the medical treatment guidelines being good for employers, and the other will take the medical treatment guidelines position that it is better for claimants. Um, now, when we discussed this, right, we talked about how uh, uh, it might, on its surface, seem good for everybody, right? What better way would there be to adjudicate uh, claims if there's clear and concise guidelines that talk about what should be approved and what should be recommended versus not? But because we litigate this day in and day out, in, in, including the depositions that you mentioned, uh, 
it's not so much of a straightforward uh, conclusion. So Declan, you wanted to take uh, the guidelines being favorable to the employers, like the true defense attorney you are. Uh, I will take the counterpoint that they're good for claimants. Uh, and just for all our listeners out there, uh, only for the sake of education and entertainment, uh, I obviously am not um, a claimant's attorney and never plan to be one uh, Cross my heart. So why don't you, we start with you, Declan. Uh, you know, what, what are some of the key advantages for employers when uh, dealing with issues involving the medical treatment guidelines? I think the number one uh, benefit is the way it controls costs for medical treatment. In the state of New York, claimants obviously control medical care and where they go to. You don't get to dictate where a claimant goes. And your only real way, other than the medical treatment guidelines, to limit medical treatment is by way of an IME. And that's putting a lot of weight on an IME that might not be always the best for you. Um, the guidelines also avoid a lot of litigation, I think, in terms of just setting forth guidelines that are straightforward in what will be approved and what's not approved. Obviously, there's always the cases that you have to litigate the issues and whether they meet the, the criteria or not. But I think from, an, from a carrier and employer perspective, the number one benefit is that it's a way to control costs. Yeah, cost control is definitely uh, you know, an advantage for employers. Uh, I would imagine that uh, it also favors, you know, uh, those employers and carriers who know more about it. Uh, it's easier to dispute variance requests. It's easier to deny payment of bills if uh, the payor who's determining whether or not the bill will be paid has a very complete and thorough understanding of the guidelines. And uh, not to say that it's easy, right? Uh, it's certainly not easy. Uh, that's what we're here for whenever our clients have questions regarding those issues. But cost control is definitely one. And uh, I would probably say from the claimant's perspective, I would want medical costs to be higher because it's going to push the employer to then want to settle to cut those costs off. So as a claimant, right, if I'm this hypothetical claimant, I'm probably thinking of ways to either get as much treatment within the guidelines as possible or simply flood carriers with variance requests themselves, right? Uh, so if I'm a claimant I've, and I know exactly what the guidelines approve, I, sh I, am, I am actually going to pursue the treatment that's there. So I could make the argument that if you're going to expand the level and depth of treatment to say what is approved, then I'm kind of skirting along the regulation that says I need prior approval for treatments over $1,000, right? The proverbial pre-authorized surgery. I would prefer to actually just go get the surgery and bill you for it if the guidelines allow me to do that. Would you think? Yeah, I, and I don't even think you have to take the, the step that the claimant's actually the one that has this I want to drive up costs just for my benefit. Just look at the doctor themselves. The doctor themselves don't want to drive up costs. They don't even have to settle the case. They just want to get more money for themselves for treatment. How often do we see cases where the doctor submitting a request for a treatment that you go to court and the claimant's like, yeah, I don't even want that treatment. It's like, what are we here for? 
Um, I think a lot of it is driven by doctors wanting to do the extra 25 sessions of PT when you've already done three years of it or a surgery that maybe not is, is not really in the best interest of the claimant, those types of things. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so cost control, right? That's that's a big aspect, right? Uh, that's certainly number one for any particular issue. How are we uh, reducing costs uh, in, with uh, any type of uh, prospect or position within a claim? Um, is there anything else that's favorable to the employer or the carrier uh, by the use or application of the medical treatment guidelines? Uh Again, cost to me will be the number one, and I think that's probably one, two, three, four, and five reasons why I would be pro. Uh, the next one, I guess, is just to have an idea of where the claim, where the claim is going to head. I mean, again, like I said before, you have doctors that are three years into a case still requesting PT. If you know that the guidelines are not going to allow it to continue forever, it's at least giving you an end goal as to how you're going to get to the end of the case, hopefully. Yeah, I think that's actually an outlining of what the guidelines intend to be, which is predictability, right? Uh, having all the information out there, it is in theory designed to benefit both sides, where uh, if I can hopefully assume as a theoretical claimant that the carrier and the healthcare provider are aware and understand what the guidelines are and what they recommend, then there should be less litigation and there should be an agreement based on how things uh, move along as far as the, you know, the medical course of treatment. I would probably say as a claimant that it's better for me because I can use the more aggressive procedures to then implement a stay uh, or an absence from work, right? If I can pursue an authorized procedure that would implement a total disability. Even if the surgery is minor, we're seeing uh, claimants do that. And uh, if there's a way to uh, say that that benefits the claimant, you know, surely those types of procedures where the doctor may believe, I'm just, I don't need to ask for permission, I'm just going to perform this procedure based on the fact that there's a rotator cuff tear or a meniscus tear then I'm going to go ahead and do it, provided you know, the prerequisites for conservative management have already been met. I would also say that a troubled claimant is probably one who has moved out of New York State because they could probably uh, be kind of, I don't want to say under the gun, but I guess disadvantaged right? Because the medical treatment guidelines apply to out-of-state providers. So if that comes into play, right, what, what is the recourse for employers or carriers when they start seeing, you know, let's say a New Jersey or a Connecticut or a Pennsylvania healthcare provider performing all these types of treatment, and we know for a fact that they don't know the New York State medical treatment guidelines. What, is a, what does an employer do at that point? Deny the bill and argue that it's, or note that it's not within the medical treatment guidelines and hopefully go to court and get an easy win when it's clearly not consistent with the guidelines. Uh, New York and New Jersey, because and Connecticut, because we're so close, a lot of the doctors do treat 
uh, workers, New York workers comp claimants. So they're more likely to be familiar. I think the benefit really comes in when you go to other states like that are further away that they're less likely to see a New York workers comp claim. If you go to the state of Texas, for instance, you might have never seen a, uh, a New York claimants before or even some random state like Iowa or Again, I don't want to start downplaying states, but somewhere that's less likely to see really, this time of time of uh, uh, the agreements and disagreements in our in our country today. We don't want to uh, pick states over one another. Just look at the statistics for where someone's likely to leave the state of New York and go to, and I think that the likelihood of it being far the further west you go, the less like more less likely it is, and the more likely that as a as a New York uh, carrier or self insured employer. You're going to get the benefit of shutting off those benefits because a doctor isn't able to, doesn't understand the guidelines and may just get frustrated and throw their hands up and say, I'm not going to treat you, which, again, I'm not saying one way or the other whether it's benefit to the, well, clearly it's a benefit to the carrier in most instances. Um, and it may resolve in a quicker resolution of the claim than it might otherwise have resulted in if they were going to go to a different state and then just treat with a Texas doctor and they would just do their regular care that they would do for a Texas claimant. Maybe Texas is a terrible example for workers' comp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what if I'm a claimant, though, and I go, I go to my out-of-state provider, and um, even with the understanding that the guidelines apply, right, uh, couldn't, isn't, isn't the theory that denial of that bill and win, a win at litigation, isn't the theory that that's short-lived, right? It's not like that doctor that I'm now seeing out of state can't treat me anymore, right? So maybe you're controlling costs, but I'm still getting the treatment that I want. And I could also say, hey, doctor, like, if you want to get paid, here's a copy of these medical treatment guidelines, right? Is there anything stopping me from doing that? Or what about just using the guidelines to as a claimant to say, well, this type of treatment you know, in the new guidelines, let's say, for all these new body parts, would usually cost over $1,000. But I, I'm imagining that once the final guidelines are issued, that there are going to be a lot of treatments that are over $1,000, but still recommended. That would say, I, I would say that's a big benefit to the claimant, where typically you'd have to go through this, uh, you know, referral and, and uh, authorization process for maybe, uh, you know, that next visit of physical therapy that puts you over like a 10 week uh, session. And now the, the, the therapy or the conservative management costs $1,100. And instead of requesting authorization, they go ahead and implement uh, an early one-time high fixed cost to the carrier. What does the carrier do at that point then? I think you're relying on the medical provider actually caring enough in that random state to, to actually figure out what the guidelines say. And, and I think that more often than not, if you're the one person that's walked through that doctor's office in the past five years, that's a New York claimant. I think there's a significant likelihood that the doctor's just not going to care enough to read the guidelines and just say, I, I can't help you. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I think there's no, a great I mean, likelihood it, in the past before that case came down that said that they didn't have to abide by the New York medical treatment guidelines. And they just, went about their business doing whatever they did in their state and they didn't care about New York. Incentivizing every claimant to just leave the state, right? Right. So you, if you're not subject to it, then more claimants are going to uh, 
If you're saying you're not subject to it, more claimants are going to leave. Um, okay, so clearly, I, you know, I would tend to agree with you that there there is more of an agreement that the guidelines are are better for the employer. But a lot of times, I think that it's only based on proper application and case handling, because those variance requests have some very very tight deadlines, right? So if I'm a claimant Aren't I advantaged by going to a workers' compensation doctor that treats workers' compensation claimants like, you know, like a mill office and just flooding a carrier with variance requests, knowing that some of them will just pass by, right? What, what, would, what would be the, the response from the employer's defense attorney to combat this kind of practice? Because, you know, we see it happen all the time. Well, it requires aggressive claims handling by the adjuster to make sure that they're responding and replying to all variances that they get timely. Um, and that, that to me is the number one thing you need to do to combat them. Obviously, in a mill, they're hoping that one out of five or maybe four out of five get through, but it doesn't necessarily benefit every single individual claimant. It might as a whole benefit the practice thing. So I think I still think that as a grand, in the grand scheme of things, it benefits a treating provider in that sense more than it would a specific individual claimant. Obviously, the claimant that gets the windfall benefits, but maybe another four don't. Well, that's where I guess I would be going, right? If it benefits my treating provider, then indirectly it benefits me because now I have more ammunition to keep my benefits going, stay out of work. And really, I mean, sometimes these variance requests are, are issued almost as a matter of course, right? Like you're building the case for surgery by highlighting the fact that PT quote unquote does not work or does not help. Um, and that, I think that's the, the real like disadvantage uh, for employers. I think that's a lot better for claimants because the board's use of the guidelines is based on its application of the resulting deadlines. To have a variance request be issued and then you get 30 days after an IME that's been provided uh, notice to all parties within five business days from the original request, or if you don't have a new IME or records review and you're just using burden of proof to defend it within 15 calendar days, I mean, those those deadlines are, are very, very tight. Yes, they are. definitely require diligence. Don't want to don't want to take a couple of days off from the, on vacation and not have someone else on backup to make sure they're monitoring for variance is coming through with your desk. Yeah, you know, I think we've also seen, too, uh, some success with the designated contact, uh, right, where it goes to a particular uh, system email address as opposed to, uh, you know, old phone numbers or fax numbers. Uh, I think that's actually benefited uh, employers and claimants because the proper access to treatment is going to be swiftly adjudicated with these tight deadlines if it goes to the right person. So uh, I can see uh, those employers and those carriers benefiting more so by having the system in place. And re in reality, that's that's exactly what the guidelines uh, allow you to do. It's like it's so capitalist in nature that it rewards the employers and carriers and the claimants and treating doctors who know the most about the guidelines. Would that be fair, or, or do you think that do you think that the actual ignorance that some of these treating providers have 
benefits them in some way. No, I think in, for the most part, if it's if it's a litigated issue, it's always going to hurt them. It's just it's if they know what boxes to check off and know how to get them into that certain. It's a very it's a very set mold that you have to meet to get some of these uh, medical treatment guidelines meet the, the criteria for. And if you know exactly what you're doing, again, we know the mills. They're always going to check off. It's an exacerbation and how exactly they they meet the criteria for an exacerbation. So it definitely rewards those that are familiar with it, do it day in and day out, and probably have someone just sitting at a desk that does nothing but file variances all day long. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's not even always the doctor who's doing it himself or herself, right? The staff member uh, or it, even the ability of new providers as of January 1st, 2020, to request authorization. Uh, there's going to be more uh, forms flying out the door, uh, and especially uh, when email service is now acceptable in a pandemic world, uh, the, the heightened uh, intensity to respond to these variance requests is all the more clear. Uh, so Declan, any, any final thoughts? Um, you know, I think we, we've had a, a back and forth discussion here and I, I'm coming to the conclusion really that COVID-19 and everything that's uh, kind of resulted from it in our world is just giving everybody the, a chance to reset or put everything on hold. And guidelines are no different. Uh, I, I am excited to see them be implemented and help control the cost that you mentioned as the biggest advantage. Uh, but any final thoughts from you on, on um, what we can expect uh, from uh, the board in this type of uh, matter? No, I'm certainly optimistic about how they will benefit uh, again, taking my side here and what I do every day is benefit employers and carriers in handling these claims. Hopefully within the next six months, although I won't hold my breath on that, uh, we'll see what happens. But I do think that they could, again, it took everyone a long time to get used to the old guidelines. And I think it will take people quite some time to get used to these guidelines. So the true benefit of it at the, at the onset could be to the employer's advantage very quickly if they get on top of it, because treating doctors may not even be aware these exist. Um, but I will be interested to see how this rolls out in the next year or so. I, I'm hoping that by January 2022, you're not still talking about when this will eventually become a thing. <laughs> I mean, uh, I hope we're, we're talking about a lot of different circumstances uh, this time next year. Um, I, I guess one thing I would imagine you know, just to kind of put a bow on it, these guidelines aren't written by lawyers. Well, some of them are on, are on a panel, but what I do like about the board's initiative here is taking the opinion of healthcare professionals. And I really wonder if there would be a possibility for an experimental IME with a doctor who's written a portion of the guidelines. That's my final thought on this one. Uh, if we're looking for an IME to dispute a variance request, why not see if some of these doctors who are on the panel can perform IMEs because eventually they'll be deemed credible. So that is uh, my final take on that. Declan, thanks for uh, appearing today. Um, so uh, for you, uh, I thank uh, our, I thank our viewership and listenership uh, for taking a listen uh, to your opinions and comments. Um, this is Christian Cisan reminding everybody to defend from day one.